Good morning, everybody. My name is Dan Kent. Thank you for being here. We are already, man, six weeks. It went so fast. Six weeks ago, we started this series. We call it the 4D Love, Four Directions of Love. And basically what that is, is it's sort of a model that we use at Woodland Hills here to understand how we are supposed to love. And it's this idea that there are four directions for which we are called to love. The first direction being we are called to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we are called to love ourselves. And we are called to love one another uh, with an agape love. And now, at the end of the series, we're talking about the fourth direction of love, which is that we are called to love creation. And, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's a sermon that, uh, I'm sorry, these lights. We have brand new lights here. I don't know if you've noticed how bright it is up here. It is really bright, okay? <clears throat> I, uh, this, there are these new LED lights, and I saw the switches back there. It goes from one all the way up to divine intervention. It's, and I think this is pretty close to the highest setting. Um, fortunately, I got wise after the first service this morning. I said, I can't do that anymore. So I brought sunglasses this time. So, oh yeah, that's so much better. That's, that's better. <laughs> I am programmed to love. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> That's, so, uh, today we're talking about nature, and uh, I'm, I'm excited about this sermon, but I'm also kind of dreading this sermon. I'm dreading it because, well, you know what it's like when you start talking about nature. There are thousands of little political hotspots and all sorts of debated issues, and it can get nasty, and people get so passionate about nature, and I'm glad that they do, but it can lead to a lot of kind of hostility, and it can lead to lots of anger and hurt feelings, and so here's my goal. My goal is to talk about nature and our love of nature without mentioning any political hotspot topic, okay? I'm not going to talk about global warming. I'm not going to tell you what you can and cannot eat. I'm not going to tell you not to hunt. I'm not going to do any of those things. And at the end, I'm going to cure cancer from the stage. <laughs> no, seriously. I, I, because I have opinions about all of these things. I really do. And I care about these topics very much. But what happens, I think, with Christianity is that we get into these intellectual pillow fights about these issues, and I think that we miss a deeper opportunity because we get so distracted by these debated topics. And so what I want to do is I want to cut through all of that and try to find this deeper opportunity, which I think is there, and, and I want to focus on that. Uh, and that opportunity is that I believe that when we go out and we engage nature and when we have an encounter with nature, I believe that we can actually encounter God in nature. And we can do that in a way that nature can actually shape us. And instead of getting distracted by these unimportant things, we can have this very, very important thing that offers us a great spiritual reward. That's my goal. How does that sound? All right. Thank you. Uh, I also want to say I have some friends here, and I'm so excited. There's multiple people that, that I didn't know were coming, and they're here. Uh, my friend Dan brought his mom, Anne. Uh, Chris uh, Gray and Lori Gray and Greg Gray and Nikki are here. And um, I just want you to know that this is the rowdy service. <laughs> just want to give you the heads up on that uh, before we, we move on. As you may have noticed already, it gets a little <coughs> rowdy here. Um, 
But in talking about nature, I want to get past sort of the surface level of nature because we all know that nature is beautiful. And we all know that we've all experienced that where we see a sunset or we see a mountain range and we just think, wow, there must be a God. You know, that this, how can you deny God when it's just so beautiful? And we've all had that feeling. And the Bible sort of captures this feeling as well. This is from Isaiah. It says, The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all of the trees of the field will clap their hands. Isn't that a great image, the trees clapping their hands in the wind? I love that. Of course, here in Minnesota, all the hands have fallen off in the last couple weeks. <laughs> it's a little more macabre, but you know, they were clapping up until then. Uh, here's, this is from Psalm. This is sort of one of the most famous nature passages. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech and they use no words. No sound is heard from them, and yet their voice goes out into all of their earth. That is... They communicate something to us. All of these things in nature, they communicate. They send us a message. And, uh, and, and I think that most people are sensitive to that message. Most people get that feeling of what that message is. I want to propose something a little bit deeper. This is what I want to explore. I want to say that not only is there a message there, it's not only that nature is a billboard with data that we consume and we process in our brain. I want to make the claim that when we approach nature with a spiritually sensitive heart and with an open heart, I believe that God's real presence can act on us through nature. God's real presence can actually act on us through nature. What I want to say is that when you have that feeling that there must be a God and you see the beauty of nature, I think that God can actually reach out to you in that experience. And God can reach and touch your heart and he can nudge your spirit in the way that God wants to nudge your spirit. That's what I want to explore. Uh, starting off with Romans 120, uh, 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things that he has made. So they are without excuse, for they knew God, yet they did not honor God or give thanks to him. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, yes, it's true that there is some information that has always been communicated in nature, and so much so that none of us are with excuse. We should all have a fundamental belief in God because that's just how obvious there is a designer and a creator in this world. So there is that knowledge there. But notice he goes a step farther. It's not just that there's this data that I must consume and process, like as if I'm a search engine or something. There's also this transformation that should take place place as a result of that uh, knowledge. God is provoking us with that knowledge so that we can become a certain way, namely grateful and honoring. So God, who is revealed in this wonderful creation, this wonderful, powerful God, is revealed in creation, but he also reaches through that creation to transform that knowledge into a holy posture, into a godly mode of being and into a properly oriented heart. In other words, nature reveals God, but then God acts upon us through nature. He does both. It's, it's a billboard that also reaches out and shapes you. 
<laughs> which is kind of creepy. <laughs> it's, it's not exactly like a billboard that reaches out and shapes you, but it's, it's, that's the idea. It's both a message and it's also a movement. It's a spiritual movement. Now, what I'm not saying is that nature is God. As soon as you start exploring that, and I understand why you might be, that might be appealing to you, but as soon as you start exploring that, it leads to a whole bouquet of conceptual and theological problems. And so what I want to say is only God is worthy of love and worship. But nature is worthy of our love. Absolutely. Nature is worthy of our committed love. The way that St. Francis said it is, is so beautiful, and I think just there's something so right about this. St. Francis is this Catholic saint, very well known for his love for animals. He used to give sermons to birds and things like that, and just like you really love nature and animals. And if you have a garden or if your neighbor has a garden, there's a pretty good chance that there's a St. Francis statue in the garden. Uh, that's sort of what St. Francis is known for. He said this. He said, nature is a sacrament, he said. He said, God is present everywhere. God is ever present. But when we take communion, when we break bread and drink wine together, the Bible tells us that Christ is present in a very unique and special way. And Francis says nature is the same way. When we have an engagement and encounter with nature with a spiritually open heart and a spiritually open mind, we can have that special presence with God as well. So when we're at the stream or the babbling brook in the mountains and we just feel this sense that God is with me, there's a good chance, Francis says, that he is there in a very special, unique way. Or when we encounter a grove of trees that are 500 years old and majestic and beautiful and we just get overwhelmed with this spiritual sense that might actually be God reaching out for our heart in that moment. Uh, and this is where, for some of us, this might get a little weird, but I want you to be open to this idea. If you're walking on a path and a deer crosses in front of you, it's possible that it was just a coincidence that the deer was there and you were there, but it's also possible that God is using that deer to say hello to you. And, and maybe when you're out on the deck and you're looking at your trees and all of a sudden a friendly bird lands on your table and starts pecking at the breadcrumbs, it's possible that's just a bird. But it's also possible that God is coming down to wink at you and say hi. That's what, that's what uh, Francis said. Now, the Bible affirms this type of thinking, as weird as it might sound to us. Uh, Moses' first encounter with God was a conversation he had with a funny-looking bush. <laughs> that was his first conversation with God. A couple books later in the book of Numbers, there's this guy named Balaam and he's mistreating his donkey and God is not happy with this and instead of just blasting Balaam, he tells Balaam that he's not happy about it. Except he tells it through the donkey. <laughs> the donkey turns around and says, what's up? What are you doing? And, and so this, there's a precedent for this. God speaks to us literally through nature but I think also in a more spiritual sense God can reach out for us as well. I think a lot of Christians are apprehensive about loving nature with the type of commitment that I think that we're called to love nature with because there's a lot of religions and there's a lot of cults that have based their whole model of thought on this idea that nature is God. And like I said, there's a lot of conceptual problems that come when we do that. And so to avoid that association, I think a lot of Christians have tried to get as far away from that as possible and they've denigrated nature and they've, and they've thought little of nature and they've basically thrown the baby out with the bathwater. But I think in order to do that, in order to denigrate nature, you have to suppress a lot of natural love that you have for nature. You know, have you ever seen kids, when they, when they grow up, they just automatically love animals. Did you ever notice that? 
No, no kid just hates animals. I mean, no, they have to be taught to hate animals. They naturally love animals. This is why the zoo is packed with kids nonstop. I mean, it's just the, this whole herd of little people like this, as far as the eye can see, because kids just love animals. Um, and, and you have to suppress that in order to uh, not like nature. And, and what I would argue is that there's no reason to suppress that love, because you can love nature without worshiping it. Another reason why we should love nature automatically is because we automatically love things that people create. When we love a person, we automatically are attracted to whatever they create. This is just an automatic thing. We like things that people create when we like the person. I mean, I, I can prove this. If you have kids or if your neighbors have kids or if you've ever known somebody with kids, you've seen the museum of crayon art on the refrigerator. You've seen this. And it's not very good. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you, because maybe nobody else has been, but the drawings are not very good, all right? The eyes are funny looking. The mouth is where the cheek is supposed to be, right? One arm is shorter than the other. The legs look like they don't bend. And the clothes, is that a dress or is that some type of mansu? What is that, you know? It's not very good. But it's great, isn't it? It's so great. And we love it because we love the person who made it. How much more so should we love this thing that's created by a person, by a being that we love with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And something that is not a crayon drawing. It's a masterpiece. It's just this gorgeous thing to experience and to behold. And in order to denigrate nature, we have to suppress all of those natural loving uh, urges that we would have. Um, and the other reason why we should love nature is because we were made to love nature. From the very beginning, we were made to live in nature and to live for nature. Now, this got me down on a, a line of thought that sort of challenged me a little bit, and I want to share this with you. Paul says in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, that everything, all of creation was made, not for us, for Christ. Everything was made for Christ. There's that. Combine that with another thought. When you look at the creation story in Genesis, the universe, the earth, the mountains, the streams, the creeks, the ponds, the birds, the fishies, the froggies, the kitties, the doggies, everything, the plants, the monarch butterflies, all of these things that we love so much, they were all made long before humans got there. Long before humans got there, they were made. And God said they were good. And not only were they good, but they were made for our Lord, Christ. That's, that's what they were made for. They were good and they were made for Christ. It seems to suggest that maybe nature doesn't really need us. You know? It just doesn't really need us. Now, God made us and he has a very special plan for us. But nature doesn't really need us. I would encourage you to think of our relationship with nature in this way. We were put here as a blessed opportunity. We were put here as an, with this great gift, this great opportunity to steward and to share in this wonderful thing that was made for Christ. And that's, that's a gift that was given to us. It's not owed to us. It's not made for us. We were made for it. And, and that's the opportunity that we've been given. What I want to say is that from brain to bone, from inside out, we were designed to have a steward posture, a servant posture toward nature. And I think what happens is the more we drift away from that servant posture towards nature, the more we drift away from our own basic constitution. The farther we get away from what we were made for, 
the more we become alienated to ourself. This is why when people go out into nature for long periods of time, they feel refreshed. They feel healed. Have you ever had that experience? Where you go out there, you have no technology, no TVs or anything, you're just out there for in the woods or at a lake or in the mountains. Don't you feel great after that? You know? Why is that? I think it's because that's what we were made for. We're now part of the context in which we were designed for. And that's why it heals us so much. Paul says this interesting thing. Right after he says everything was made for Christ, Paul says this, and you don't hear this a lot, but he says, the gospel was proclaimed. That is, the good news, the whole point of our religion was proclaimed not just to people, but to every creature, he says. Now, when you get a tract or a get right with Jesus card or something like that, it's always, here's how you can avoid hell and atone for your sins. It doesn't say anything about the creatures. But Paul says, no, the the good news is for all of the creatures. And he says in 123, he says, I have dedicated myself as a servant to this gospel, this gospel to every creature. I have dedicated my life to this gospel. And he ended up giving his life for it as well. And really, this just refreshes the original mandate, the original kind of job description that God gave us in the garden, which was to uh, take care of the garden and to maintain the garden and to keep the garden safe. Uh, and, and Paul is just refreshing this, this mandate. And so I think that we should set our hearts toward loving nature to the best of our ability, but not in a naive way. <laughs> because God isn't the only one revealed in nature, unfortunately. There is also an enemy in nature that is revealed. And uh, although nature is beautiful, it also rings with cruelty. And it literally shrieks with violence. And there is wickedness and just unbending suffering in nature as well. Greg said in week one that we can't build our entire picture of God based on nature. And I think he's absolutely right because there's more than just God revealed in there. There's, there's ungodliness in there as well. And, and so even though nature wows us with its beauty, it oftentimes kind of horrifies us with its abundant death, its uh, suffering, and its overall unchristlikeness. And so we have to love nature, but not naively. But we should still commit to loving it, even though it has all of this wickedness and profound unchristlikeness in it. Because really, this is no different than our call to love our neighbors and to love other people. Because guess what? People demonstrate profound wickedness also. And yet we're called to love other people, right? We're called to love other people even though a lot of times they're very wicked. And, you know, we're even called to love our enemies. Those whose, whose hostility is aimed directly at us, we're even called to love them. So in the same way, we love other people as they are even if they are demonstrated in wickedness. And so too we love nature as it is. And really this just flows over from the love that God has for us. God loved us with an unsurpassable love, a, a, a greater love than is cosmically possible. We can't, we can't be loved more than God loved us. And he loved us when we were set against him, when, when we were still sinners, Romans 5, 8 says. So when we were at our worst, when all we cared about was ourselves, we didn't care about other people, all we cared about was satisfying our own desires, we didn't give two toots about nature or other people. God loved us even then. And it's this love that should overflow toward creation and toward other people. Uh, This is what we were made for. But in the same way that we love other people, we have to have boundaries, you know, 
because people are dangerous and, and we're important too and we have to protect ourselves and so we have to have boundaries with other people. So too we should have boundaries between us and nature. So what I'm saying is don't start befriending grizzly bears. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Don't, I know it's fun to feed the squirrels, but don't let them live in your house, okay? Barbara, that's for you. <laughs> boundaries are good. Boundaries are good. Our problem, though, I think, is that we get too good at our boundaries. We have these unsurpassable boundaries between us and nature. The, the walls are too high and too thick, and we've lost contact with nature. They're too strong. And what happens is, even though we're isolated from nature and we're clean and we're safe, isn't that great? We're so clean and safe from nature and it's, it's not touching us anymore. Uh, that comes at a cost. What, the cost is that we end up alienating from an important part of ourselves. We end up drifting into a state of like pseudo-humanity where we're sterile and kind of literally unnatural. If you feel this way, if you feel like, I just feel like I'm a cog in a machine, that's probably a symptom that you've drifted away from nature. It's, it's, it's this false feeling that we have, like there's something unreal about my life. We have drifted away from what we were designed for. And also, more than all of that, I think that we miss a unique opportunity to encounter God in nature. This is why I think the enemy works so hard to distract us from nature and to suppress our love for nature and to even flat out destroy nature. If you think about what, what Paul said in Romans 1.20, he says that God is so obvious in nature that people should not have an excuse but to believe. That's how obvious it is. Nature reveals God so strongly that it should compel belief. So let me ask you this. What happens then if we destroy the nature? Notice that? We've also destroyed a revelation of God. If you think about the grove of trees, okay? I just love trees. You go to this grove of trees and there are these 500-year-old trees and it's just so majestic and it just feels so divine and you've probably experienced that. And just the smell of the trees and even the smell of the rotting leaves, there's just something right about that whole environment, that whole ambiance. And you just get this sense that there's something holy about this. And then an army of bulldozers comes through and bulldozes the trees down and puts an apartment building there. And now you're standing in the parking lot of an apartment building. Does that feel holy? <laughs> it doesn't. And I, apartment buildings are good, okay? And so are cities. If you love nature, you should love apartment buildings and cities because it's one of our last defenses against urban sprawl. And so I'm not talking bad about apartments. In fact, I spent a lot of my growing up years in apartments. I, uh, I can still remember that apartment hall smell. <laughs> you know that smell. It's like a mix of hamburger helper and kitty litter. <laughs> it's this weird sort of thing. And I can't, I've never been able to get it out of my system. But you can't deny that when you bulldozer over a, a grove of trees and put an apartment there, you've hidden something holy. You've hidden something divine. Uh, Barbara made this observation a while back. She said, do you ever notice how apartment complexes are always named after the thing that they destroyed? It's always Meadow Brook Apartments. <laughs> There's no meadow or brook here anymore, <laughs> right? It's gone. Or Prairie Oaks Condominiums. Not anymore. <laughs> it's just condominiums now. Or uh, Mendota Woods, River View, Rustling Pines. You know, and you go out into the parking lot and there's no rustling pines. There's a tattered sock in the parking lot. There's a pickup truck with three wheels and it's leaning funny. 
There's uh, an empty medication bottle. There's a, a purse that's been snatched and emptied. There's no rustling pines at all. It's just, there's nothing holy about it at, at all. In fact, I want you to hear me out. I don't know if it's too late, but if I run for president, okay, this is what I want to do. It's not too late, okay. When I run for president, I should say, this is my platform. I'm going to demand that apartment complexes name themselves accurately because this is false advertising, all right? Apartments need to name themselves accurately. I have a few ideas to share with you, okay? Here's one. Trickling pipes apartments. <laughs> Fabrizi Hills apartments. And then my favorite, Landlord's Bluff apartments. <laughs> So, uh, uh, vote for Dan, 2020. Um, so we can suppress nature. We can suppress God's revelation when we suppress nature. When we destroy nature, we are destroying this opportunity to experience God and to have this confidence in God's existence. That's what happens. It's, it's not free when we destroy a grove of trees. It doesn't come for free. It costs us something deep. When we cover everything in concrete, that changes our whole orientation to reality. There was an earthquake in, in uh, Los Angeles in uh, 1994. And um, it was a 6.7. And it was in Los Angeles at 4.30 in the morning. It's the darkest time of the day. 4.30 in the morning, Los Angeles, 6.7 earthquake. The power in the whole city went out. 15 minutes later, 911 started getting calls of these distressed citizens because there was this cloud of lights above them and it looked ominous. <laughs> it was the galaxy. It was the stars. These folks had lived under light pollution for so long that they didn't know that the stars were so plentiful. They didn't know that that's what the sky looked like in its natural state. Isn't that amazing? And, and it's so sad because if you've ever been someplace, like in a prairie or out in the ocean where there's no light pollution, and you see that, you see those stars, it's amazing. It's just breathtaking, all those stars. And, and imagine every night walking out and seeing that, the cumulative effect that that has on your spirit and on your confidence in the existence of God and on your sense of awe and wonder and how that just accumulates into just a strong spiritual confidence, you know? Now imagine if somebody put a big blanket over the top of that every day of your life and you never got that cumulative experience of God. Can you see how God can be hidden and that revelation can be hidden from us? Unfortunately, that's our situation. We have light pollution. We're not going back. We're not going to turn all of our lights off every night. That's not going to happen. But I think that if we can somehow get through the nature that we have suppressed, and if we can re-engage nature, even though we've alienated ourselves from it, I think it would pay huge spiritual dividends. And so what I want to do is I want to offer four ideas to overcome this disengagement and this barrier that we have with nature. The first one is simply that we need to practice presence with nature. And this has been a tactic that we've used in, in every direction of love. We need to practice intentional presence with God. And we need to practice intentional presence with ourselves where we understand ourselves and we re reflect deeply on our own lives and our own hearts and our own spirits. 
We practice intentional presence with others. David Morrow talked about this last week, and it's just a phenomenal sermon. I recommend you listening to it. Um, And we also practice intentional presence with nature. Uh, That is, spend regular time in nature only for the sake of nature. Not jet skiing, not hunting. If you want to hunt, that's fine, but that's not experiencing nature. That's, That's experiencing recreation, which is fine. But go out into nature, too, and just experience nature for its own sake which is harder than it sounds. Unfortunately, experiencing nature for its own sake as it normally is, that's sort of become a luxury, you know? I mean, we can experience city parks, which are so groomed and chemically treated, it's just barely nature. And uh, we can experience uh, bigger parks, but those are still overseen and, and they're not like the way nature really is. They're all groomed. In order to get to real nature, that's something only rich people seem to be able to do with their SUVs and helicopters and whatever it is that they get out to these places. I don't know. But I encourage you to try your best and to go as far into real nature as you can. Um, and a lot of people think, well, I take, I take care of my lawn. <laughs> and again, the lawn is just barely nature, okay? There is so many chemicals in that lawn. If you're walking out on your lawn in your socks, that's not nature. <laughs> that's carpet. That's what that is. And, and most people have outdoor carpet. That's, that's what that is. Or your dog. You know, we all love our dogs. But anything that poops when you want it to, pees where you want it to, is good on a leash, uh, can do tricks, and sleeps in bed with you, that's not nature. <laughs> that's a weird family member is what that is. Okay? So I encourage you to look for ways to spend time in real nature as much as... Maybe you're in a situation where all you can do is a garden. That's great. That's, if that's the best you can do. Or maybe a houseplant is what you can do. Do whatever you can. Uh, in the 1980s in Japan, they were experiencing something that we're experiencing here in America right now. They experienced a huge jump in suicides. Just this big jump, like out of nowhere, all of a sudden people started killing themselves. And there was this sense of malaise that was higher than any other time in Japanese history. And there was depression and mood disorders. And what they found worked really well. They called it Shinrin-yoku, which was called forest bathing. And they would take people who had these symptoms and they would just drop them in the woods without any technology for a half hour, 45 minutes at a time. And they would just sit out in the woods or in the mountains by themselves with no distractions, no traffic noise, and just be in nature. And what they found was all of their symptoms got better. Their sense of stress diminished, their heart rate was lower, their mood elevated. All of these things naturally happen. Now, there's all sorts of hypotheses about why that is. There's uh, talk about uh, fighting sides, I think they're called, and these elements that plants give off and things like that. And, uh, but I think what it is, is we're getting back in touch with what we were made for. It's, our, our system is designed to be with nature in this intimate, real sort of way. This leads me to my second point, which is we have to develop the ability to see. We have to develop the eyes to see God in nature. Because just being out in nature, um, that might not be enough. You might need to also learn how to see uh, special things in nature. Maybe you just get bored in nature and you don't understand what the big deal is. If that's the case, then I encourage you to pursue um, this idea of developing eyes to see. I have a friend, his name is Paul. He wrote a book this year called uh, Love and Quasars. And it's, it's probably the, my favorite book that I've read this year. It's just a really great read. Highly recommend it. He starts the book off with this story of William Herschel. And the reason why... I bring William Herschel up is because 
you know, on one hand, God is obvious in nature, but on the other hand, I think that we can get better at seeing God in nature. We can get better at seeing more of God in nature. We can develop the ability to see more of God there. And the story of William Herschel is interesting because William Herschel in 1781 discovered a planet. And this is before we had the whole solar system all mapped out. He discovered a planet with his telescope, and he named it George. (laughs) It's a great name for a planet, isn't it? George. Now, the scientific community didn't like that name. They said that, no, no, we should name it after the Greek sky god, Uranus. That's what they named it. So I want to tell you something funny about Uranus. All right, you guys, seriously, grow up. I mean, are you serious? This is church. Come on. All right, I'm going to refer to it as George because we're just not mature enough to refer to it as Uranus. All right, so what he found was that you couldn't look at, you could see planet George in the sky with your naked eye. You could see planet George. I was going to say you could see Uranus with your naked eye, but that was too weird. You could see George with your naked eye. But the interesting thing is you can't see it if you look directly at it. Because of the way your rods and your cones work in the back of your eye and the way that light hits them, the only way to see planet George is to look to the side of it. And then you'll start to see it in your periphery. But as soon as you look directly at it, poof, it disappears. Isn't that weird? They call this, stargazers call this averted vision. It's, it's a, you have to look at it in the right way. I think nature is like that also. We have to look at nature in the right way. Sometimes when we look directly at it with just our normal self, we might not see the magic that is there. We have to learn how to see it. I think art, you know, definitely the best thing you can do is just to have more experiences of nature. Dwell in nature. Get as natural as you can. Find nature in its unharmed form as much as possible. That's the best thing to, to build those experiences. But also artists can serve as uh, good mentors as well. This is a Van Gogh painting from uh, the MIA. And you guys, seriously, this is in the Impressionism section. It's on the third floor. If you're in Uptown, you can park for free on the street. It's free to get into the MIA. Go up to the third floor, and there's a little bench in front of this painting, and you sit there no matter what time of year it is. It could be the middle of January. It will warm your heart if you're sitting in front of this thing. The the screen doesn't, doesn't capture it. It's just this beautiful thing. Now, this is called the Olive Grove, and uh, Van Gogh here shows us these olive trees under the sun. Uh, this is probably a $30, $40 million painting. But for $30, $40 million, those are pretty crummy-looking olive trees, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I mean, if I wanted to know what an olive tree looked like, this kind of gives me a rough sense, but not really. But for $30 million, at least, I want more detail, right? But notice, Van Gogh is not trying to tell you what an olive tree looks like because we all know what trees look like. We know all of the fine detail of trees. Van Gogh is trying to show us something that we don't normally see. What Van Gogh is showing us in this olive grove is that there is an energy in the whole entire scene. There's an energy that goes from the weeds up through the the trunk of the tree, through the shadows even. There's just this energy, and it's all connected in the sky and the sun and the mountains, and it's it's that bath of energy that Van Gogh is capturing, and it's a bath of energy that most of us are just immune to. We don't even recognize. And Van Gogh, a good artist will show you what's there, But a great artist will show you what you didn't know was there. And that's what Van Gogh is doing, is he's showing you something that you have maybe neglected to notice. Uh, And that's why it's a masterpiece. 
Poets are, are similar. Uh, this is a haiku from uh, Basho. He says, There, a silent pond. Look, into it jumps a frog. Splash, water's music. Now you might think, well, it's just a frog jumping into a pond. What's the big deal? You know? But what, what Basho is doing here is he's pointing that out. This episode has become so familiar to us that we don't even notice it anymore. And so what Basho is doing in this haiku is he's helping us celebrate this thing that's become too familiar to us. And he's dramatizing this ordinary thing and he's reminding our senses that, hey, this is pretty cool. It's, we see it so much that we don't recognize how cool this really is. The sound of a frog jumping in water you can't capture that in an instrument. It's a very unique sort of sound. And Basho is trying to get us to recognize the magic and the miracle of this thing that we've become desensitized to. Um, other poets are really helpful at this. Wendell Berry does a good job of helping with this. And uh, this summer I read Mary Oliver. She's fantastic. Robert Frost, of course, is uh, a master at, at helping us see these types of things. In fact, when I was in college, I memorized a bunch of Robert Frost poems. My thinking was, once I found the right woman, this is really going to knock her off her feet, you know? <laughs> so I memorized all these poems, and uh, I don't think it really impressed her. <laughs> uh, but, all right, I'll read one to you. <clears throat> this is called Fireflies in the Garden. Here come real stars to fill the upper skies, and here on earth come emulating flies that, though never equal stars in size, and never really were stars at heart, Achieve at times a very star-like start. Only, of course, they can't sustain the part. Isn't that a great poem? Isn't that awesome? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so find masters, find people who can help you see things in nature that maybe you've just become numb to is, is that tactic. The next tactic is naming the animals. And this is based on uh, a story from Genesis, Genesis 2.20. Uh, Adam named all the animals, the birds of the air, and the living creatures of the field. Raise your hand if you've heard the story of Adam naming the animals. Probably in Sunday school. I can't see anything, so this is kind of worthless. In fact, I might not see you for a good hour after the service until my eyes readjust, just so you know. But we're all familiar with this idea that Adam named the animals. And uh, I think, though, this is a very magical sort of uh, part of the story that I think kind of gets overlooked. In our just Google it life, in our kind of uh, information age, I think we look at this story with sort of dull eyes. And I would like you to maybe reconsider how you look at this story. Because I think we tend to get this idea that when Adam is naming the animals, he's sort of establishing the species and the genus of all these animals. And he says, this shall be called rabbit. And he marks it on the clipboard, gives it to God, and then God says, ah, rabbit, and then files it in the appropriate spot, as if God cares about all of this categorization. You know, he doesn't. According to the Bible, he doesn't really care about that as much as he cares about relationships. And this is why in the Old Testament, when God names somebody, this is a big deal. This isn't just categorizing a person. This is establishing a new identity in that living creature. It's creating a new bond between them and God. It's basically establishing the start of a new relationship. So when Adam is naming the animals, he's not creating a taxonomical structure. He is connecting with friends is what he's doing. And he's not saying, oh, look, ectotherm testudine. <laughs> he's saying... I will call you Norbert. That's what he's saying. And he looks like a Norbert, doesn't he? Hey, 
such a cutie. He, Adam wasn't saying duck. He was saying, hello, Maud. That's what he's saying. And, you know, I don't have time to give the defense, but I can make such a good defense of this. But every animal in the Bible, the Bible tells us that every single animal that God made is precious. It is so valuable. God knows every feather of every sparrow. That's how important each animal is. But we get so desensitized to animals where it's just a Squash, 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 squash,